Good evening. Welcome to the Hirshhorn Museum. I'm Valerie Fletcher, senior curator here, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to tonight's lecture, which is being presented in connection with the exhibition upstairs on the second floor, entitled Morris Lewis Now, An American Master Revisited. Before we get to tonight's program itself, I'd like to mention a few upcoming programs uh, in the next three weeks. We've become quite a happening place, I think, recently. Uh, tonight's lecture uh, is being funded by, and I'd like to express our thanks to, Dr. Penn Lupovich. He has also kindly funded the next program on Morris Lewis, which is called In Conversation. It's called that because Jeffrey Grove, the Wheeling family curator of modern contemporary art at the High Museum in Atlanta, and, of course, the organizing curator of the Morris Lewis exhibition, will be holding, literally, a conversation with two younger artists, Chris Vassell and Monique von Gendered, on their works, which, if you know their works, and they are published in our current um, new magazine, it's a combination of calendar and magazine, you will see immediately that, they are, that each of these artists was inspired partly by the works uh, of Morris Lewis. They use color as their primary means of expression in abstract terms. In addition to the Morris Lewis exhibition on the second floor, we've recently opened uh, another in our black box presentations here on the lower level. It's a uh, film done in 2005 called Departure by the Romanian artist Mircea Cantor, who also works part-time in Paris. Cantor will give a talk here as part of our series, Meet the Artist, and that will take place here October 2nd at 7 p.m. Two nights later, on October 4th at 8 p.m., we'll be showing an additional selection of his films. And then one of our most popular events, which is held periodically on a Friday evening called After Hours, our next one will be on October 5th. And there are many activities, including music, connected with that. But for those of you who might be interested in a tour of the Morris Lewis show, there'll be a 10 p.m. Insomniac's tour of the show. And it's my pleasure to give that. And somehow I find it fitting, because I'm a lifelong insomniac. And now to tonight's program. Um, the Hirshhorn is immensely pleased to present the, Hirsch, the Morris Lewis Now exhibition. He's always been an important artist in Washington. He's always also been important at the Hirshhorn, and many of you may be familiar with at least one of the five paintings in our collection. Uh, the one that's most often exhibited here is called Point of Tranquility. And it's especially nice to see our paintings, such as the Point of Tranquility, in the context of the 28 other paintings in this exhibition, because it allows us to see not just the beauty of one work or two works that we might appreciate greatly on their own merits, but to understand the complexity and subtleties of Lewis's creativity and how he was always working in a kind of dialogue and expansion and building upon what he had done before. And we can see that more readily uh, in a presentation like this show. It's the first major museum show of Lewis's work in uh, a little over 20 years in the United States. And the 30 uh, paintings on show here is just a small portion of his productivity. From 1954 until his death in 1962, Lewis created 600 paintings that we know of. He destroyed others. Um, his innovative met method, that is of pouring thinned acrylic paints 
on an unprimed or raw canvas so that the colors permeated into the fabric of the canvas uh, is something that's uh, of importance in itself as a technique. But he was an innovator who put that towards creating his own personal language in such a way that the technique involved and the aesthetics that result are really inseparable. Um, Morris Lewis Now, an American Master Revisited, was organized by the High Museum in Atlanta. The exhibition was supported by Marcella Lewis Brenner and by, the Harry, by Harriet and Elliot Goldstein. And I'd like to take a moment to say a special welcome to Marcella, who was with us last night for the reception and dinner and is with us this evening. So thank you very much for all of your help and support. The exhibition's presentation here at the Hirshhorn has been made possible through the generous support of the Hirshhorn's Board of Trustees and our national benefactors, and donors to the Hirshhorn's Exhibition Fund and Annual Circle. So thanks to all of those who've helped us bring this to light. Now, let me introduce you briefly to tonight's speaker. We are particularly delighted tonight that Diane Upright who has long been recognized as the foremost authority on the work of Morris Lewis, will be speaking with us. Diane reminded me that um, the subject of Morris Lewis was the subject of her doctoral dissertation. Perhaps I won't say how far back that was, but <laughs> she, I can say that because I'm of the same generation. Uh, but in 1985, she published that in an updated form as the official catalog resume of the complete paintings of Morris Lewis. And in the introduction to that uh, text, one of which, by the way, is at the entrance to the exhibition, so you're welcome to look through that and see the, the full output of the artist, um, she presented a concise overview of his works, of his methods, and his aesthetics, but also addressing some difficult problems. When the artist died, many works uh, had never been exhibited or sold, and many of them had not even been stretched or framed. And she addressed questions such as dating and chronology and titling. Now, Diane began her career actually in the academic and museum fields as a professor of art history at Harvard University and a senior curator at the Museum of Modern Art in Fort Worth, Texas. Since then, she's become and remains a widely respected art dealer and consultant. And what many people may not know is that she has always, and including in the present instance, given of her expertise, her time, her insight, and her advice to curators such as Jeffrey Grove, who are organizing shows like the one we have upstairs. Um, despite her expertise, Diane tends not to want to stand in the spotlight. And she rarely agrees to give ex, uh, exhibition lectures or indeed lectures of any sort in a formal setting. But as a favor to us, she's uh, going to talk about her insights, her relationship, her understandings of the work of Morris Lewis. So please join me in welcoming Diane Upright. Thank you, Valerie. That was very kind. Um, I will say from the outset that I'm standing here speaking in public one of these rare times for one very specific reason and in honor of one very specific person, and that is Marcella Lewis Brenner, whom I have been honored and pleased to consider a mentor and friend for about 35 years. 
Um, so Marcella, this evening is for you. Thank you. You're looking at a photograph of Morris Lewis taken about 1957. This is a photograph that you all are seeing. Um, uh, it's the first time it's been shown in public. This photograph was sent to me by indirectly someone who knew Lewis um, just about six weeks ago. I'd never seen it before. The painting that he's standing in front of uh, is illustrated in my catalog resume, but in black and white, because I never have seen the painting. It doesn't, um, it's, we, we don't know this painting anymore. So this is a little bit of a mystery that I'm happy to share with you. The painting is also from about 1957. Morris Lewis was born in Baltimore, local boy, 1912. Um, his name was Morris, legal name is Morris Lewis Bernstein, and he was the third of four sons. His brothers were, two of them were doctors, and one was a pharmacist. At that time, I think it would be safe to say in a Jewish family that an artist was a black sheep. He went to the Maryland Institute College of Art on a scholarship at the age of 15. Uh, and studied there and received a degree in 1932. He worked in Baltimore um, on the Public Works of Art program, good, um, solid WPA um, art, not particularly distinguished, uh, but clearly won the respect of his colleagues early on because as a young man he was elected president of the Baltimore Artists Union. In 1936, um, he sought the broader world and moved to New York. Most interesting, um, although we know very little about it other than the fact that he worked in the workshop, experimental workshop, of the Mexican painter Siqueiros. And we know from reports of other artists uh, that experimental techniques and experimental media were explored there. Uh, Lewis didn't take advantage of that for a number of years, but he had it in his background. Uh, like most artists, he could not really support himself as an artist. Um, so among his jobs, he worked as a window decorator. Uh, important to him at the time, he met a fellow young man named Leonard Bocour, who was a paint manufacturer, and they forged a friendship that would become extremely important to Lewis um, as he moved on in his career because of the paint called Magna that Bocour developed. And he changed his name from Bernstein, to, he dropped the Bernstein and became Morris Lewis, um, a possi possibly because um, there were other Bernsteins on the payroll of the WPA and he wanted to separate himself out. His work was um, acceptable, not really startlingly original. This painting um, is perfectly characteristic of good, solid, normal, easel paintings. He was described during these WPA years as quiet and contemplative. And I had a conversation at dinner last night with Alice Denny, who I assume is known to many of you, who continued to describe him as quiet and contemplative. She talked about him coming to parties that she gave, and he was often sitting in the corner, quiet and contemplative. In uh, the early 1940s, he um, gave up on New York. He moved back to Baltimore. He lived with his parents. He had a studio in the basement of the house and accepted financial support from his brothers. Not an altogether um, happy situation, but circumstances changed dramatically. And in 1947, 
He married his then next door neighbor, Marcella Siegel, um, and they moved to Silver Spring, Maryland into a two-room apartment. Marcella was the financial support um, then and for Lewis virtually for the rest of his um, life. She was a school teacher. Um, Marcella's own career is another whole history, but she worked her way up through the ranks of the um, educational world in this area. Um, but nonetheless, she supported Morris to the extent that half of the two-room apartment was his studio. They lived in one room, and he took over the other room to work. In 1948, he started using the Magna acrylic paint, um, which was to make such a difference for him. During the early 50s, he exhibited in local um, uh, exhibitions uh, in the area, and about the most um, original paintings from that time is a series of paintings called Charred Journals, of which this is one, and there is one in the exhibition. Uh, perfectly respectable painting from 1951, but certainly nothing startling and original. Um, one sees overtures of Miro, of Picasso, maybe a little bit Jackson Pollock, but this is not an advanced painting for 1951. In 1952, they moved into um, the district to a house in, on Legation Street, and that would be Lewis's home for the rest of his unfortunately brief life. His studio um, now became the dining room of the house. Uh, it really, when you walk through the show, and it happens to me every time I have the opportunity to see a Lewis exhibition, when you walk through galleries and look at Lewis paintings, you have got to remind yourself that this man worked on all of these paintings in a studio that was 12 by 14 feet. I mean, it's virtually incomprehensible. Um, uh, at this time, so we're, in the, we're now in the early 50s, he taught at the Washington Workshop Center for the Arts, a rather vital institution for this city at that time. And most important for him in terms of people he met there was Kenneth Noland, who really became a window for him into the larger world. It was through Noland that Lewis was introduced to Clement Greenberg, um, shown quite characteristically with his arm around the two girls. Um, and through Greenberg, um, a window was opened onto what was going on in New York. Uh, Lewis met Helen Frankenthaler, um, a, another very good friend of Greenberg's at the time. Um, Greenberg was a crucial sounding board for Lewis, um, but the, the relationship is more complicated than often described. Greenberg was not the um, orchestra conductor who told Lewis what to do, um, but he did certainly encourage him um, in a very important manner and also made a really strong effort to introduce Lewis's work not only to collectors but to dealers in order to get the work shown. Trellis, uh, which is in this exhibition, I'm pretty much only showing you paintings that you can go and see up, up, upstairs in person, uh, is the painting in this show that most clearly shows Lewis's opening up to uh, more imaginative techniques and to a whole other way of conceiving of painting. It's the first kind of picture that is 
large, not by later Lewis standards, but it's not an easel scale picture. It's a six and a half by eight and a half foot picture, clearly inspired by his exposure to Helen Frankenthaler's pictures together with Noland um, in 1953 on a somewhat historic visit to her studio. Uh, when they came back to Washington, having seen Frankenthaler working loosely with improvisational methods, staining, she was working with oil paint, but nonetheless, staining canvas, um, uh, Lewis and Noland actually worked together for a little while. Lew uh, Noland called it jam painting, like jazz. Uh, that lasted very briefly, and then Lewis went to work in his studio. This is an unusual painting in that the title was probably given by Lewis himself, and there is a clear nature reference here. There was a grape arbor in the backyard, uh, and this is really a very Frankenthaler-type painting. Those of you familiar with Mountains and Sea that's often on view um, at the National Gallery will understand. Greenberg showed this painting in an exhibition at um, the Coots Gallery in New York in 1954, the title of the exhibition was Emerging Talent. Morris Lewis was 42 years old. Um, we all live in a time where emerging talent means um, curators, directors, and collectors, for that matter, going through MFA studios before kids get their degrees. Um, Morris Lewis emerged here um, with one painting at the age of 42. Sometime between Trellis in 1953 and in the months thereafter, Lewis made his first true breakthrough paintings. Um, a series in terms of what survives, and Lewis was a stringent editor of his own work, and editing for Lewis meant destroying, but he made a series of about 16 paintings that remain, uh, which are his first veil paintings, where he truly took advantage of the ability of the acrylic, magna acrylic paint to be thinned down, not an easy thing. And the, the magna he worked with came in tubes, um, like traditional oil paint. Um, it was thick and um, hard, and he thinned it down with acrylic resin and turpentine in vast quantities, which you know we know because he was an incredible record keeper, so we know how much turpentine um, he was going through at any given time. Uh, and he poured the paint in waves across the canvas, producing these um, glorious, completely abstract, disembodied fields of color. Sometime late in 1954, he sent a roll of nine of these paintings up to Greenberg in New York in the hopes that Greenberg could attract interest either on the part of collectors or dealers. But a letter that went along to Greenberg at the same time described these pictures as possessing what Lewis called a continuity of um, a simple pattern and slow motion, which is as good a description of them as I've ever read or heard. But he also said he wasn't interested in this anymore. Um, he was not interested in following up on it. And in fact, um, from sometime in 1955 until early 1958, Lewis went off in a totally different direction. There were a couple of visits to New York at this point. He visited de Kooning. He met Franz Klein. Um, he must have seen what um, was prevalent in New York galleries, which was sort of diluted 
um, already second generation abstract expressionism with a lot of artists trying to find their way past de Kooning and Pollock, mostly de Kooning. And Lewis fell into a kind of ambivalent use of the loose um, uh, fluid paint that he'd been working with, but it gets sort of this tortured, um, non-focused composition. Uh, we know, again, careful record keeper, he probably painted about 350 paintings, all give or take six and a half by eight and a half feet between 1955 and 1957, but of them about a dozen remain. Uh, he came to see them as not successful either and destroyed them. In the spring of 1958, he returned to the idea of those 16 veil paintings from 1954, but he returned to them with a glorious vengeance. He also returned on an even larger scale. I have no, I have no idea why. I don't know what motivated him, but the paintings, which by many people's standards at six and a half by eight and a half feet were large, now became eight and a half feet by 12, 14, 16, 18 feet. These are being painted in the 12 by 14 foot studio. Um, I mean, it is astounding. And the concentration is astounding. Um, he worked on veil paintings for about 14 months and produced 120 paintings that survived. There may well have been more that did not. Um, this means about one painting every three days. He worked alone. There are a lot of mysteries um, around Lewis. There was some discussion yesterday morning at the press preview about how do you characterize this. And um, my characterization, and I never knew Lewis, is that he was just a very private man. Um, Marcella, teaching school, um, did not drive a car. To this day, she doesn't drive a car. Um, so Morris would drive her to work in the morning, go back, go into that dining room, his studio and work all day. And by the time Marcella came home at the end of the day, the paintings were, fans were going and canvases were drying. Nobody saw Lewis make his paintings. He did not leave notes or descriptions talking about his technique, his philosophy, or virtually anything. Um, what we have from Lewis in terms of writings are letters to Greenberg, um, Technical things. Clem, I've got a bunch of pictures. I need some titles. You have any ideas for titles? Clem would write back, give him a list of titles. Lewis would pick and choose, um, and you can compare the list with the titles with paintings that have taken those titles. Um, the whole issue of titling Lewis's paintings um, becomes very interesting because we're far enough away now from these great paintings from the 50s where because some these veil paintings are primarily titled with transliterations of letters from the Hebrew alphabet. Hence, we have master's thesis or something or other about Morris Lewis, the Jewish mystic. Um, however, the transliterations of letters from the Hebrew alphabet were assigned after Lewis's death to untitled paintings, and the use of the Hebrew alphabet was actually Marcella's decision, because shortly after Morris died, his work was selected for inclusion in a documenta exhibition in Germany, um, and um, Marcella chose, in a sense, to make a statement by using the Hebrew alphabet. 
um, Lewis himself had used letters of the Greek alphabet before, so she was not completely inventing new ground. Lewis made these glorious things, we think, um, working with a portable uh, uh, work stretcher, not the kind of stretcher where you stretch a canvas tightly, but he tacked the canvas to the edges of a piece of wood. And we also see traces of vertical supports. If you look at the center of this painting called Beth Samak, and also a little bit to the right, you see a darker vertical line. Um, it's not really a line. It's a place where the paint was absorbed differently. And there are so many paintings that have these lines in the same place that one has to assume that it had to do with how the, the paint was absorbed. This one comes from a group of veils afterwards called bronze veils for the obvious reason of the bronze tonality. But it's, it was Lewis's choice. If you look along the top edge, you see these glorious flickers of very bright color, which is what he put down first. But he was pushed during um, uh, this in period of year or so um, to tone down many of these veils with a wash over the top. Not always. Um, the veils cover a remarkable spectrum, this series of 120 pictures. Um, and one sees Lewis um, letting more of the color come out, as in this great painting that was lent by the Fort Worth Museum. Sometimes veiling it even darker in this really lush, velvety, deep, mysterious picture that the Toledo Museum has lent and then um, sometimes just letting it zing, this incredibly Baroque, exuberant picture lent by the National Gallery. Um, I don't mean to harp on all these museums, but I think it's um, a tribute to um, uh, the High Museum and Jeffrey, the organizing curator, that there are 14 museum lenders uh, in this exhibition from all over the United States. So this is an extraordinary opportunity to see really um, the best of museum collections, and then there are about six private collectors who permitted their arms to be twisted um, and to let valued pictures come and join this exhibition. In April of 1959, um, Lewis had the opportunity for the first time to see a grouping of his own paintings, almost as many paintings are as on view here. Greenberg organized a show in for a gallery called French and Company in New York that had a, a space that's hard to um, imagine now, even given the size of um, Chelsea galleries or Soho galleries. Uh, there were more than 20 Lewis paintings, veil paintings, um, included in this exhibition. So imagine Morris Lewis, who has looked at one painting at a time, and when he finished his paintings in his little studio, he rolled them up and they were stored in his basement. And he'd stretch, roll out another one, make a painting, roll it up, put it in the basement. So imagine Lewis walking into the galleries and seeing 20-odd veil paintings all together for the first time. I mean, it's truly difficult to imagine. But what happened was that he changed direction dramatically. And this happened a couple of times during his lifetime when he had the chance to see a show. It's as if, okay, I can digest that now, um, and where do I go? Um, 
Where he went, we know, because um, Greenberg organized a second show in the same galleries a year later. And we, one saw, including Lewis, what happened in the period from 1959 to 60. And what we know is that there was no singular series of pictures during that year. It was almost as many paintings as produced in the Vale series, give or take 120, closer to 150 paintings. Um, but now, Lewis was taking um, his ability to pour in the paint, his interest in bold colors, and an interest in exploring other kinds of drawing on the canvas. Uh, and he explored all kinds of possibilities within this, um, this, his own realm. Size of these paintings remains eight and a half to 12, 14, 16 feet. Seal was on the cover of that exhibition announcement. Um, reflects one possibility um, that he explored. Para 3, um, which comes from the High Museum's collection, shows Lewis at his most Matissean up to that point. This incredibly dynamic um, 60s day glow, um, bold, young picture, using the same device that Matisse often used, which is color as vibrant as possible, set off by black. Uh, those of you familiar with the um, Phillips's um, Matisse painting with the um, shutters, um, which Lewis certainly would have known, he liked the Phillips collection, um, can perhaps see something like that. I mean, and then from the same year, um, Valerie pointed out that Point of Tranquility uh, really is the signature painting of Lewis's from the Hirshhorn collection. It's probably one of the greatest paintings from that year of what I called themes and variations, just to, to try to pull it together. Um, one of the floral paintings, which is a sort of subgroup, um, called Floral for obvious reasons. While this exhibition was on view, Clement Greenberg published an essay in a magazine called Art International, which was arguably then the most influential magazine of its time for the international art world. And the essay was called Lewis and Noland. This was the first time that Greenberg, who was um, one of the two or three most important art critics working in this country, it was the first time that he threw his full weight behind individual artists since his championing of Jackson Pollock in the 1940s and David Smith in the 1950s. I mean, this was a hugely influential essay. Greenberg stressed the fact that Lewis was taking abstract painting in an entirely different direction that he had, was making no reference to cubism, to space, to shapes, to balance, um, that he was working with disembodied color. Um, he was supported in his views of the importance of Lewis and this color painting um, by William Rubin, influ influential critic, and by William Rubin's brother, um, Lawrence Larry, who was a dealer. Um, and they put their financial weight behind Lewis um, and bought a group of paintings, uh, which Brother Larry showed 
in a couple of different galleries that he had in Europe, one in um, Italy, one in Paris. This essay and these two French and Company shows um, truly launched Lewis, far more than the one emerging talent show. Um, and Lewis is now 47 years old. Unfortunately, right after this show, French and Company closed its painting galleries. Um, fortunately, Lewis was, um, Greenberg introduced Lewis to the dealer Andre Emmerich, who took on the representation of Morris Lewis at this time uh, and represented Lewis um, up until uh, Mr. Emmerich retired and closed his own gallery, which was about 1995. For the first time, Lewis actually saw a little bit of income um, and the kind of um, emotional support that a painter gets from the ability to actually sell a painting. Um, in the 40s and 50s, when he sold, a good sale would be about a $500 sale. Um, in 1961, um, um, things moved and um, uh, about 14 paintings were sold and Lewis had an income of about $14,000 from his art, which was a lot of money then. I'm not trying to harp on money, but um, it had a direct impact on Lewis's work because he could afford to buy materials on a level um, that had not previously been possible. Um, so in 1960, it's the first year where his his ability to stockpile canvas. He bought a thousand yards of canvas um, during the year 1960. Now, on the one hand, that's a lot of canvas. On the other hand, if every one of your paintings is, give or take, 15 feet long, it goes pretty quickly. But nonetheless, um, one can imagine a certain amount of liberation going on in his head that he had the ability um, to conceive of big paintings. Um, also, at that time, because of complaints from both Lewis and Noland, they pressured Leonard Bocour to make a different formula of the Magna paint. Up until then, they'd been working with paint in tubes, grinding it down and thinning it. Um, beginning in 1960, Bocour manufactured the Magna in a syrupy-like consistency that they could buy in gallon cans and it made the pouring much more um, easy and the colors much more vivid. Um, this, this is a, a chart of the colors that Bocour manufactured and early on as a compulsive neurotic graduate student, um, I made um, literally on the canvas um, samples of each one of these colors and remember as I went around to museums looking at paintings, um, compared the colors as they came out of the can with the colors in Lewis's unfurls and stripes where the colors are pure, he didn't mix his colors. Um, the reason this Bocour Magna um, color chart is Lewis's palette. Um, this painting called Alpha Epsilon from Museum of Contemporary Art in um, L.A. is probably the single best demonstration of what I mean by liberation, being able to buy more canvas and working with the new consistency of the paint. This painting is 20 feet long. 
Um, I remind you, I hate to harp on it, but the studio was 12 by 14 feet. Um, clearly, uh, Lewis had some finagling to do um, to make this happen. Uh, when you have the chance to either see the exhibition for the first time or go back if you've already seen it, if you look in the center of this where there's the channel of unpainted canvas, um, for the only time that I know of in all the years that I've looked at Lewis paintings, you can actually see his pencil marks um, where he marked the limits of the start of the pores of paint, which clearly started in the center and went off, um, first in one direction and the other. And clearly, he could only paint half of this painting at a time. This is also the boldest statement of the book, of the Magna, the Bocorch color chart was his palette. Um, if you look at this, I'm not quite sure how clear the colors are in here, but if you look at the real painting, um, this is primary colors on the left, secondary colors on the right, and black going across. I mean, this is like a color primer, but on a grand and exuberant um, scale. Beginning um, in the summer of 1960 and going just into the spring of 1961, Lewis produced what he believed to be his most important series of paintings. Um, generically called the Unfurleds. Again, series for Lewis seems to have been about 120 paintings. This time, eight months, um, and about 120 of these magnificent and completely audacious, and if you think about it, bizarre paintings, because half the canvas is empty. Um, it's the simplest possible compositional structure. It's give or take three triangles that are locked together, two of them zinging with color and wonderful control of drawing, um, held in some sort of equilibrium by this vast expanse of completely unpainted, untouched white cotton duck. Um, they seem some to me somehow or other Inevitable. I mean, they just present themselves as um, masterworks. Two of these paintings of these 120 unfurls were shown during Lewis's lifetime. It was a show at Bennington College. Lewis did not see the show. He never saw a single one of these paintings on a stretcher. He never saw one except leaning against the wall of his studio or rolled out on the floor in the living room, which he used from time to time to show paintings either to Greenberg or to Emmerich. Based upon a chronology of visits, this entire series was done in between visits from either Greenberg or Emmerich. So nobody saw these paintings um, until after Lewis died. Um, it's, again, a sort of an astounding history. This probably is the most ideal framework for Lewis's boldness of color um, and his unique drawing style, but he was never satisfied. By the end of April um, of 1961, Lewis started working on um, the last, what would to become the last series of paintings. Um, 
initially called pillars, now called stripe paintings. They certainly bear some resemblance to the veil paintings in the sense of their verticality. They relate to the unfurled paintings because of the boldness of color. Um, these are pure colors straight out of the um, cans. The only mixing is where they slightly overlap. These were the first paintings since 1954 where there was any chance for them to be hung in a normal space. And Greenberg and Emmerich were both ecstatic because finally there were pictures that could actually be shown on gallery walls. Again, you've got to think back. We are all so accustomed to loft-like spaces for galleries, for collectors. Um, it didn't exist at the time. Um, it was the size of these paintings that invented Soho galleries in New York. The galleries had to move into bigger spaces. Um, the, the galleries were in Midtown in Manhattan. I don't know Washington well enough to know where they were, but it was some similar kind of place. They were normal spaces. They weren't big. Um, collectors hung paintings over the couch, um, over the fireplace. Uh, we are also accustomed to interior design where there's, the furniture got moved away from the walls, conversation areas in the center, freeing up the walls for big paintings. It's, it it's just a whole other way of thinking. Um, although these, these paintings were small enough to be hung, these weren't small paintings. The one you're looking at is seven by five feet, um, but small by Lewis standards. Um, Greenberg and Emmerich were excited about the challenge of these paintings, the aesthetics of them, um, the strength of them, and the fact that they could be shown. Morris Lewis worked for maximum of 16 months um, on this series of paintings, um, beginning in about April of 61 until June of 1962, um, when the lung cancer that would take his life um, in September of 62 made it impossible for him to continue painting. Because these paintings were physically somewhat smaller and he could actually paint several paintings at once on um, a piece of canvas, there are about 230 of these. I mean, this man painted. He painted, and he painted, and painted, and painted. Um, in the spring of the last year of his life, even these, um, uh, even these stripe paintings were pushed by him into a slightly different direction. And he produced about a dozen um, in a horizontal format. And the truth, if the truth be known, no one has any idea how he managed to do this. Um, there were, um, Marcella remembers seeing what she calls daubers in the studio, a long stick with something like muslin at the end, um, indicating that maybe the, these stripes, and this is eight or nine feet of color, um, were somehow or other drawn across the canvas. Bocour, who manufactured the paint, never understood how this was possible because of the consistent intensity and saturation of the color along its entire length. He couldn't do it. He asked Lewis how he managed, and he reported that Lewis's answer was, you got something to say, you say it. 
Um, in the very last summer, as he was getting ready for an exhibition at the Emmerich Gallery in October of 62, um, Lewis took one final, even bolder step. And he took three of these horizontally placed um, stripes and marked them for stretching as diagonals. Um, this is completely out of whack, this image. I mean, the paint, this painting actually is only about five feet square, so you're, this is distorted to look at it this large. In a letter to Emmerich getting ready for the show in October, Lewis said that he hoped that this diagonal would help transition to what he referred to as the big unfurling ones and what he was talking about was the fact that Emmerich was planning, when he opened a space in um, Soho, to do as his first exhibition, an exhibition of the unfurled paintings, which hadn't been seen yet. And so for Lewis, this diagonal color um, would have some resonance. Lewis never saw the exhibition um, of stripe paintings at Emmerich's in October of 1961. Um, he died in September, so that show became a memorial exhibition. And one of the nicest reviews s noted, sadly, that recognition was really just coming to Lewis. The exhibition history of his pictures tells the truth of that. Uh, in 1959, there were two exhibitions that had works by Lewis in them. In 1960, there were six. In 1961, there were seven. In 1962, there were 11, including shows in France and Germany. In 1963, there were 17 exhibitions that included Lewis's work worldwide, including a memorial exhibition at the Guggenheim Museum in New York. In 1964, there were 19 exhibitions, including the fact that Lewis was featured at the Venice Biennale. In 1967 was the first major American retrospective organized by Michael Fried, whose monograph, which was the first book on Lewis, was published in 1970. His work is in the collection of most any major museum around the world and an extraordinary number of private collections. But the interest in Greenbergian color field painting waned, um, to put it mildly and shows of his work went on at a rapidly reduced pace during the 70s and 80s. Um, a trend that was bucked by John Elderfield, a curator at the Museum of Modern Art, who organized the last retrospective in 1986, which also was viewed here at the Hirshhorn. Um, and there have continued to be shows, and in fact, in the last, I would say, um, eight, to years or so, we have increasingly renewed interest in Lewis, um, culminating in Jeffrey Grove and the High Museum's desire to organize this retrospective, which is now the first one in 20 years. As we look at this work now, um, if you think back to the Veil paintings, very romantic, very abstract expressionist, Rothko-like pictures, up to this, um, which is an incredibly forward-thinking, minimalist um, picture. Lewis, a little bit like Arsio Gorky, sits in between um, two generations. What we don't know 
and the biggest mystery, set aside, how did he do it, questions, is what he would have done. These paintings were all produced in a period of about eight years. He was only 49 when he died. If one thinks of the vast body of work produced by his colleague, Ken Noland, um, after 1962, um, and the incredible imagination and variety that Lewis put into his work in this period of eight years, it's an extraordinary question to try to think what would have happened. But that's a little bit like wondering what the Shakespeare character says when they walk off the stage. Um, the great pleasure for me, um, and I know it's shared by Marcella, is to go through the galleries now um, and to listen to people who have absolutely no idea who Morris Lewis is and who are coming to this work um, as um, brand new audience um, who think that this may be some extraordinarily undiscovered young artist because these pictures feel so fresh and new. Uh, and I invite you all to go enjoy them, either for the first time or again, and I thank you. And I'm happy to take questions if there are any. And if not, go have, whoops. <laughs> I can't see that far. I don't know that. I've never seen, um, uh, I mean, there's certainly still um, many of his students who are around and in this community. Uh, I don't honestly know that answer to the question. Marcella. I'm sorry. The question was, are there any records of Lewis's teaching um, from, as report, reported by his students? Maybe you have the answer to the question. Okay. The answer is Ned. <laughs> uh, you, you made a very, I think, important point about not just the scale of the paintings compared to the space they were created in, but then you went on further to talk about, let's call it the market for things that were outsized. And I'm just curious if you could speculate or either or account for, you never saw these paintings, some of them. I mean, it's just so remarkable that You know, it, I, I only speculate that the reason things changed after both French and company exhibitions was because he got to see the work for the first time. Uh, at breakfast this morning, um, courtesy of Mar Marcella, I was talking a little bit about my first chance to see a lot of paintings, and I was a graduate student, and it was in a warehouse, um, and thanks to Marcella, all I was able to see, all the then rolled paintings, of which in that century there were still many paintings um, stored on rolls, and I was photographing them in order to produce the catalogue resume. And it took 10 days um, working with a crew of guys to roll them out and put them up in some way that I could photograph them. And that was when I first started getting the feeling of what it must have been like for him, because 
one painting at a time into the basement. Um, and he only rolled them out to show them very occasionally. Uh, you know, this was, this was not something, this was not a common practice. But the idea that he couldn't see them vertically, particularly the unfurleds, um, I mean, it's, it, you know, I've been doing this Lewis stuff for a few years, and I've never really gotten my head around it completely. Yes? Um, he marked them for stretching. He sent them rolled to New York. A man um, named Jim Lebrun, who was a hero to many artists at the time, built the stretchers. Um, what was used for framing is what's still on a lot of these paintings, which is just a stripping with a slight gold edge. Uh, he, they were all, they all used that. It's interesting now. I was walking through the exhibition last night um, with I forget who. And I personally have a problem with the ones that don't have the stripping around it. It seems to me that these paintings need to be stopped somehow or other at the edges. And when there isn't anything, um, I find it a little uncomfortable. They were certainly all shown with, I mean, it wasn't a frame in the sense of anything decorative, but it was a visual stopper on the edge. In terms of actually placing the paintings, I have no idea. I kind of doubt it because I don't think Lewis would necessarily have tangled with either Greenberg or Emmerich. There was discussion, however, about which was top and which was bottom, um, and Lewis was very consistently firm about what he thought. He deferred in a couple of instances um, to both of those men, um, and they both said that in the end, Lewis was right, um, and um, he, he knew how to look at his own paintings. Yes, sir. We had this conversation yesterday. Um, Lewis died in 1962, and the first exhibition that identified a Washington school happened in 1965. I mean, Lewis was, um, by all reports, about the most solitary person um, known. So the idea of belonging to a school, I think, would have been anathema to him. Yes, ma'am. Um, the, all kinds of things happen to these pictures, and that's the bad news. The good news is there's been, um, there is right now internationally, truthfully, um, a real focus on the part of conservation scientists and practicing conservators to address the issues, um, and it really is a lot of textile issues. It's the canvas, it's the unpainted canvas that is far more the problem. The Magnus, fabulous. Um, nothing happens uh, unless somebody does something truly drastic. But unpainted cotton duck um, is a very sensitive material. There is a, I don't know if you've been upstairs, but there is a gallery at the end of the exhibition um, that's been mounted by um, Tatiana Ausima and Susan Lake, conservators here. Um, that talks about some of the issues that are being developed. Basically, the Hirshhorn National Gallery, the Getty, Harvard, 
um, and some private conservators um, have been collaborating at a variety of um, meetings and discussions rather intensely over the past several years to figure out how to do this. Yes, ma'am. I was just wondering if you had a favorite point for this? <laughs> Depends on the day. <laughs> Too hard. Thank you very much.